you can uh, grab your Bible, or if you did not bring one, there should be a black hardcover in the seats in front of you. Uh, turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 6, please. Ephesians chapter 6. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6, or swipe, whichever device you may be using. Yeah, I was sitting on the couch in the living room last night preparing for the sermon, and it's Halloween. <laughs> That's a first for me. And um, it was interesting to think about, and I thought um, about spiritual warfare, and um, we have a house across the street that went all out all night long to um, celebrate uh, Halloween, and just a lot of creepy, over-the-top, gross things, and our girls, they had, they had screens outside, so our girls want to go, what's on the screen? Those are zombies, don't look at that. Um, but just, just thinking about what's happening last night, but thinking about what's happening all the time. In fact, thinking about what's happening right now where God's people have gathered to hear God's word. How many of you are tired? Okay, so some of you are telling the truth. All right, good. So some of us are tired this morning, uh, right now. And um, I think that's a, a minor way that Satan uses us to, to not hear hits, not hear God's word. But um, Satan's active and he's prowling and I think he's prowling now. In this place, and so we want to proclaim God's word, and we want to receive God's word, um, understanding that this is warfare, and that there is um, a war going on behind the scenes for our hearts and our minds. And I want to remind you of that with Ephesians six verse ten. So, um, just this is kind of just not not even related to intro, but I thought that this was significant because of Halloween. Uh, last night. He, uh, Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against Republicans and Democrats and independents and governments. We wrestle primarily with flesh, without well, flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's why we need the armor of God. Uh, we need the armor of God because there is a spiritual reality um, in this world, and there are spiritual beings and forces that are opposed to God and therefore are opposed to us. So right now, we're going to pray and enter into uh, spiritual warfare for the hearts and souls of men and women. So let's pray. Father, we uh, understand that um, this faith that we have is a supernatural faith. Um, but so often um, in uh, our a modern world, we forget about the supernatural. We explain away the supernatural. We don't want to consider the supernatural. But even now, um, in this room, there is uh, a war going on. And Lord, uh, in churches right now all across Orange County, um, there is warfare going on. We think even of um, Young Knack Presbyterian Church across the street as they worship you right now. We pray that you would um, bless them and give them uh, strength as they don the armor of God. We pray for ourselves this morning that you would help us to hear from you, that your word would be communicated to us um, by uh, the Bible and by uh, what I say. So guard my lips and um, open our ears and our hearts to consider what you have for us. And, and Lord, for those in this room who have, um, who have never understood the spiritual battle, who do not um, know even which side perhaps that they're on, 
uh, that this morning may be a defining moment for them, that they will realize the um, extent of what is happening, the, the seriousness of what is going on, um, the battle for souls, the battle for truth, and the battle for glory. So we pray this morning, Lord, that you would show yourself to, the, to these people. Um, thank you for this gathering. Thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. That being said, we are in the middle of a series on the names of God. Some of them are displayed behind me or up on the sides in different uh, formats. And we have covered lots and lots of names. I didn't count how many we have, but we're going through until the last Sunday of 2015. So we've got a bunch more names to consider. And the four or five, depending on how you're counting, names that we want to consider today are the service names of Jesus. Last week we talked about the salvation names of Jesus. So we primarily have worked our way through um, some more general uh, names for God and have kind of shifted now to specific names for Jesus Christ. Uh, we will also be talking about names of the Holy Spirit. And then we've saved some Christmas names um, for the, the Christmas holiday coming Soon, So that's where we are this morning. I know that um, from hearing from several of you and hearing some feedback through Pastor Ron that many of you have really enjoyed learning these names and learning these things and kind of feeling like a, a fire hose, just trying to grab here and there to catch on to some things. I just want to let you know, Pastor Ron's working on actually a, I don't know if it's a half sheet or a full sheet of all the names to kind of keep track and reference them so that um, as we continue to go through the series, you can have a, a reference a point. I don't know exactly when we're going to have that, but in the next few weeks, um, we, we're hoping to have that for you as a resource to kind of go back. And of course, you can always go um, on the church website to listen to past sermons that you may have missed. Well, you, you're in Ephesians. Turn back a few books to the book of John, the gospel of John, John chapter 1. And there are, are many, many places that we could go to discuss this first name. Um, but this is a little concentrated area where this name is used. And that name is Rabbi or teacher. And so as you're turning to John chapter 1, just let me uh, tell you, rabbi is an Aramaic and Hebrew term that basically most of our Bibles have transliterated. So they haven't tried to translate it into something else. They've kept it, rabbi. Um, Rabbi uh, means something like my great one. So rav is the word for great um, in Hebrew and in Aramaic. And so if you add uh, an I on the end there, it's, it's like my great one. Or it came to mean something more like my lord, or a title, master. Um, It was sir. Um, It became a specialized title, especially in the decades following Jesus' life, and especially after the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. Uh, Twice in the New Testament, uh, the word Rabboni is used. You may remember that, especially from Mary Magdalene in the garden. Um, She sees the risen Lord, doesn't recognize him, and, and he says, Mary and her response is Rabboni. And there's a lot of debate about what that exactly means, but it's, it's like a, an intensified um, form of rabbi. It's a, an, a, a, a higher form of rabbi to pronounce maybe even my rabbi, a, a personal belonging to a rabbi. But a rabbi essentially was a respected person in the community who was known to teach God's law. A respected person in the community who was known to teach God's law. It was a little bit informal at the time of Jesus, but generally what happened um, is a rabbi had gone to school and had learned um, the Torah, the Old Testament, had looked into the prophets and memorized huge swaths of the Old Testament. Um, And now this person who became a rabbi um, would then gather disciples 
to him. Um, and these disciples would basically apply for the privilege of living life with a rabbi in hopes of one day becoming a rabbi as well. Um, again, it was a little bit informal and it was probably different in Galilee where Jesus lived uh, than it was down in the south near to Jerusalem where there were a lot more priests and a lot more um, established uh, religious leaders. Um, but up in Galilee, there would have been rabbis that roamed. Um, they, they walked around, they taught in different villages. They may have stayed a little closer to their own areas and taught there. But people would approach the rabbi. They would go to the rabbi for wisdom, for questions concerning God's law. They would approach the rabbi to have him explain how to live a life that pleased the Lord. This is um, what we see in the, in the scriptures when we uh, see the word rabbi. Uh, It's generally used in the book of John more than the other Gospels, and it's only used about 14 times. Uh, But here in John chapter 1, Jesus actually begins to gather his first disciples, um, incidentally taking them from his cousin, John the Baptist. So in John 1, uh, 35, this is after the day that uh, John the Baptist uh, famously says, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And in verse 35, it says, The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus had a great name, Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So he brought him to Jesus. This is as the disciples begin to gather. They gather to Jesus as a rabbi. He is one who is respected as a teacher of God's law. And as we see the opposition from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, uh, we can surmise, we can assume that a lot of what they were feeling in regards to jealousy for Jesus is that Jesus didn't go through the normal process of becoming a rabbi. Um, Jesus, someday, one day, we don't know how exactly this worked, he put down his carpenter tools and began to live the life of a rabbi. Um, This was highly irregular and, of course, would have made all these men who had studied for decades, perhaps, um, jealous. And, of course, when the establishment is um, opposed or is challenged, they do not like it. So here's Jesus now gathering disciples to himself. The next day, Jesus um, is, is going to Galilee, and there he finds a man named Philip. Verse 43, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, this is the opposite of what most rabbis would do. Most rabbis would be approached by potential disciples who would want to attach themselves to this great man. Um, And so this would be sort of the application process. Now, Jesus actually is going out and seeking followers and telling them to follow him. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Essentially he's saying, 
that, uh, it's a podunk hick town on the northern side of um, uh, the Jezreel Valley. It's a small village, no consequence. Can anything good come from there? Um, this would be like us picking on a small town out in the Mojave Desert and making fun of it because no one comes from there, no one lives there, no one wants to stay there. Okay, this is a similarity there. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That's creepy. <laughs> okay. Um, how did he know this? Um, and in the, the Near Eastern world, this would have been assumed immediately there is something, there's some spiritual power at work here for him to have seen me. And Nathaniel recognizes that, and immediately he says, Rabbi. He, he recognizes that Jesus is a great one, a learned one, someone who explains the law. Rabbi, not only that, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So just by this revelation that he knew where Nathaniel was, Um, Nathaniel recognizes this is no ordinary man. He is the rabbi. Jesus never says not to call him rabbi. He never dismisses that. I didn't actually go through the educational process. He doesn't say that. He accepts the the term of rabbi. In fact, in chapter 3, when Nicodemus famously comes to Jesus at night, Nicodemus also calls Jesus rabbi. And that is very significant because Nicodemus himself was part of the Sanhedrin, the 70 ruling members um, of religious life in Israel. So Nicodemus was um, no Joe Schmo. He was an elevated individual. He was um, educated. He may very well have been wealthy. And yet he recognized in Jesus' teaching, the words that Jesus Jesus spoke, um, Nicodemus said, this man is a rabbi. We recognize him as a rabbi. He calls him by that name. Rabbi is used, as I said, only 14 times in the New Testament. The word teacher, which is related, um, is used actually a lot more. Um, And that's because it's a Greek word. Um, So perhaps um, he would have been called rabbi a lot. But when the authors wrote the New Testament in Greek, they may have um, translated it over so that Greek speakers would recognize what is being said. Whatever the case here, um, we need to go to Matthew 23 and see what Jesus has to say about titles and about being known as a teacher. If you read the Gospels, it's impossible not to come to the conclusion that this Jesus is a teacher because he teaches quite a bit. If you read the book of Matthew, there are five extended portions of teaching where if you have a red letter Bible, it's just basically red. The whole, the whole thing is red because Jesus is teaching. Um, also in the book of John, there's an extended section in John 13 through 17 where Jesus is with his disciples and it's just all teaching where Jesus is, is, is dispensing instructions for Life. In fact, one of the reasons Jesus promises the Holy Spirit is to remind the disciples of all that Jesus taught. Meaning he taught so much that they were going to need some supernatural help to remember what was taught them. I think specifically so that they can relate it to the nations and write it down for our good. But in Matthew 23, Jesus is, is sitting with the crowds and his disciples um, and some Pharisees and scribes are around. They can't stay away. Um, from this man 
And Jesus begins to uh, call down seven woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, these are essentially um, curses on these people. And he begins to very pointedly go after the sinful tendencies and the sinful motivations of these religious people. So you have to understand, Jesus isn't going after liberals. <laughs> okay, Jesus is going after the religious establishment. Jesus is going after the good guys, the good people, as they would have been seen in Jewish society. These were law keepers. Um, these were the ones who wanted to follow God, and Jesus was going after them. Well, here's what he says to them um, in, in verse, start in verse 3. Uh, do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. That's a motivation. That's a heart attitude. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Those were religious um, paraphernalia to wear and worship. And they made them bigger than they needed to be so that they might be noticed. Verse 6, they love the place of honor at feasts. It's the don't mind if I do kind of attitude. And the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They loved the title. They reveled in the title because it brought them honor. They gloried in being honored by the people. And this is what Jesus goes after. Don't, don't, um, don't love that. Look at verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Jesus says, be careful. I think, I think that Jesus is not saying that the word rabbi in itself is wrong, but that what had happened in Jewish society is that the word rabbi was used to flatter on the one side to gain favor. Uh, on the other side, it was desired to make one honorable in society, to be respected, to be made much of. And so Jesus says to his disciples, not so with you, as he says in other places, but you are not to be called rabbi. You have one teacher. And the system in Israel was that one day the rabbi would be replaced. And there would be another one to take his place who would rise up in his place. Um, what Even to this day, what many um, Orthodox Jews do is they quote rabbis to try to decide what the law says. So they'll quote this rabbi over here. But this guy says, uh-uh, this rabbi over here. And begin to quote these rabbis, elevating the rabbis and their thoughts over the very words of God. And Jesus says, there's one teacher. I'm your teacher no one's going to replace Jesus. We're not looking for someone to step in and replace Jesus. He is our one teacher. I wonder, um, are you following the leader? Are you following the teacher? Whose disciple are you? And that question is meant not to, for you to answer flippantly, Jesus, of course. That, that question is meant for you to think, Whose disciple am I? Who am I following? Who am I learning from? Who am I placing myself under? Who am I learning from? And lastly, from whom do you receive instruction? From whom do you receive instruction? Because you have a choice. In fact, you have millions of choices um, on your smartphone, (laughs) on the radio, um, in the books that you buy, in the magazines that you read, you have so many choices as to who you will receive instruction from. Who are you placing yourself under? Who are you following? See, Jesus was and is our teacher. We have his words recorded in the scriptures for our benefit. 
And if we do not go back to the scriptures again and again, then we will put ourselves under other teachers. We must go back to the Bible to see what Jesus instructs of us. You see, Jesus makes demands of us. Um, Jesus was, was a good teacher. Um, he was more than a teacher, but he was not less than that. He was a teacher who taught the things of God in such a way that he changed the world. The next uh, name that I want to cover is right here on the piano, actually, is High Priest. High Priest. And uh, as, we, as we dive into this one, there's a lot of Old Testament background. And so um, if you want to this week, I would suggest you read through the riveting books of Leviticus and Numbers. <laughs> I just heard from all the people that get stalled in their year-long reading program, right? No, you go back to Leviticus, go back to Numbers, and see some of these fascinating things related to the high priest. But we're going to look in the book of Hebrews. So turn to Hebrews, actually chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and this is going to be way too short uh, of a summary. Um, but the book of Hebrews is uh, the only place, really, in the New Testament that deals with Jesus specifically as our high priest. In the Old Testament... God appointed one tribe, the tribe of Levi, to a special work. The tribe of Levi was set aside to help in the worship of Yahweh. Um, And there were uh, priests and there were Levites. So there's a tribe of Levi, and underneath that, depending on where your parentage came from, you were a Levite who helped. You were given specific responsibilities, especially um, in relation to the tabernacle, into the later temple. Uh, or if you were descended from Aaron and his line, you were a priest. So you were still a Levite, but you were higher up. You were given the priesthood. And generally in the Old Testament, passed from father to son was the concept of the one and the only high priest. And of course, that's Aaron at first um, in the stories that you may be familiar with in the book of Exodus. Moses' brother Aaron becomes the first high priest in Exodus, Leviticus, and in Numbers. So the high priest had a special ordination. Um, in fact, if you go back and read that, there is a, an animal slaughtered, and Moses puts blood from the sacrifice on Aaron's earlobe, on Aaron's, Aaron's thumb, and on Aaron's big toe. We're not going to be demonstrating that today. But that was, that was to cover um, his ears so that he would hear from God, that was his special calling to hear from God. He was to, with his hands, do the sacrifices and take care of the worship of God. And then the toe was meant because he was going to walk in a certain way as to be an example to the people of Israel. The high priest had a special ordination. The high priest had special cleansing and holiness. He had to bathe himself multiple times in order to be cleansed and ritually pure to approach God in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Uh, the, the high priest also had special garments. And we got a picture of this, an example perhaps of what this may have looked like. Um, this is uh, taken from the scriptures as best we can tell to be what the high priest would have worn when he was doing um, his job as high priest to approach God in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. On his breastplate you'll see um, three rows of, well, four, depending on rose columns, however you want to do that. There are 12 jewels on the breastplate, and the Bible specifically says that those are for the sons of Israel, the 12 tribes, and they're on his breastplate to be close to his heart um, so that 
the high priest bears the, the, the nation on his heart. You'll also notice on his shoulders, he has a similar thing. And six of the tribes are on one shoulder and six of the tribes are on the other. And in a different way, in more of a laborious, toilsome way, he's carrying the tribes of Israel before God. He's, he's shouldering them into the presence of God. And there are lots of other things that um, are related to the clothing that is worn, but those are specifically what I wanted to, to give you a picture of. Um, so the high priest had a special ordination. He had a special cleansing. He had special garments. In fact, um, he even had to wear um, everything that he was wearing had to be special and clean and spotless. And lastly, um, the high priest had special access. The high priest had special access. So in Leviticus 16 and other places in Numbers and Deuteronomy, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, is described. And on one day of the year, the high priest would enter into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and he would atone for the sins of the nation. And this is where it became increasingly important to understand what's on his breastplate and what's on his shoulders. So that as the high priest, as the only one who is allowed, can enter into the most holy place where Yahweh's presence resides, he there makes atonement for the entire nation. He is the only one who's allowed access behind the veil in the place where the Ark of the Covenant was stored once a year. Incredible access, incredible weight and responsibility that every year the high priest would do his duty before God's presence um, on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, a covering of the sin. And so that the whole nation would be fasting that day. The whole nation would be considering their place before God and their representative, the high priest, would enter into the Holy of Holies for them. So what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, the first hint of something that this has to do with is when Jesus dies on the cross in our place for our sin on that day on Calvary, across the city in the temple, in the place where only the high priest could go, there was a veil that marked off this special, most holy place from the rest of the temple. And when Jesus, our Savior, died, that curtain tore in two from top to bottom. Um, And it was a massive curtain uh, that was dozens of feet high, and it was thick. Um, It was not something that you could just go with a little razor and slice. This was a supernatural event. Why is the curtain, why is the veil tearing? What's happening? Well, you have to imagine that the the priests and Levites, if they were there or nearby, when the ground begins to shake, that there's all kinds of paraphernalia to worship the Lord in the holy place. There's there's tables and there's a menorah, a a lampstand. There's another little altar of incense in there. And I I just imaginatively um, think of them running into the, the temple and just stopping because here in the place that they're not allowed to go they're not allowed to look now there is a rip a tear in this curtain what the the symbolism that would have meant to them um, would have been terrifying and i think that what it means is and we'll see this in the book of hebrews is that we now have access like the high priest who could enter once a year now the, the veil has been torn in two There's two ways you can look at it, and I think they're both actually accurate. Now there's access in, 
But there's also this sense in which the presence of God now comes out. Because on the day of Pentecost, a few months later, the Holy Spirit is poured out and God's presence becomes the privilege of every believer, not just the high priest. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, we'll just do a, a brief survey through the book of Hebrews because um, the author of Hebrews um, makes some very important arguments based on the fact that Jesus is now our high priest. And he, he leaves the argument to, make some, to go down some tangents and make some points, but then he comes back to it several times. So in Hebrews chapter 2, we want to look at what it means that Jesus is our high priest. Look at verse 17. This is speaking of Jesus, speaking of his superiority to every other person and created being. And it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And this is rich, and we could spend a few weeks here. But briefly, this is an argument for Jesus, the eternal Son of God, taking on human flesh, becoming like us in every respect, the passage says. He becomes like us in every respect. Why? So that he could mercifully and faithfully serve as high priest. The high priest went to God for the people and came back to the people for God. He was a mediator. He was an intercessor. He went between the two. In order for that to happen, Jesus, the argument goes here, had to become man. He had to become like his brothers because the high priest was like his brothers. See, the high priest wasn't special in and of himself. He was special because God had declared him to be special. God had set him apart as special. The high priest had to go in and offer sacrifices for himself because the high priest himself was a sinner. When he was atoning for the sins of the nation, he was also atoning for his own sin. In this regard, Jesus becomes like the people that he is atoning for. He becomes like the people that he is atoning their sins for. Now also, there is a a secondary but very beautiful picture here in verse 18. That because Jesus became flesh, because he became a human being and put on the weakness of human flesh, he suffered when tempted. And because he suffered when tempted now, right now, for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Were you tempted this week? (laughs) There is a high priest named Jesus who has suffered when tempted. As we'll see in chapter 4, he did not succumb to that temptation. But because he went through it, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the eternal, unchangeable God becomes mortal man and experiences something in a way that he couldn't have as God. He becomes man and experiences those things as a man and now is able to help those who are being tempted. So when you pray, when you seek God during your temptation... You have a high priest who's been through those things before and he's able to help you, which means he's powerful to help you. He can help you. That is good news. We need help in our temptations, don't we? We need someone to come alongside us who knows what we've been through. 
Well, in chapter 4 of Hebrews, go to Hebrews chapter 4, the author continues to make an argument. And again, there's just so much here that we, we can't follow the extent of the argument. But in Hebrews 4, 14, the author returns to this theme and says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in is this term again, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now the picture is again of Jesus who's gone through the temptations and the only difference is, a pretty big one, he never sinned. He never succumbed to the temptation. He never went through with any sin. He knows our weaknesses, he knows our temptations, yet without sin. And verse 16 then says, why is this important? Who cares? What's, this, what's the big deal here? Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the privilege of the new covenant Christian. We don't have to send a high priest once a year into God's presence. We can go into God's presence. We have access to God because of the work of Jesus Christ. We can not only go into God's presence itself we can go confidently notice that's not brazenly okay that's not um overly familiar but that is access to god's presence so that we might ask for grace and get mercy in time of need listen (laughs) the access to god is the big difference between the old testament and the new testament you read through those books leviticus and numbers and you see the the extent to which God protected the people from his presence. He set up rules and laws and regulations and physical structures to keep himself away from the people. And that once a year, only once, one time a year, one person gets to go for a few minutes into God's presence. Now that's been blown apart. Now we have access to God anytime we want. With confidence, we can draw near to God because Jesus is our great high priest. As we go through to chapter 5, verse 10, um, it talks about uh, Jesus is designated by God um, as a high priest. And um, he is able to be our source of salvation. It uh, explains in that uh, portion of the scripture. Um, Later on in chapter 7, Uh, It talks about Jesus being an appointed priest that God appointed to do a specific work. Um, In that work, Jesus then becomes the guarantor of a better covenant because what Jesus did is something that was permanent. The high priest was going to die. And there was another one going to take his place. The high priest sinned and needed to make atonement for his sin. And he needed to do it year after year after year after year. Jesus, as high priest, is sinless. Jesus, as high priest, will never die. He's defeated death. And so this sacrifice that this high priest has made for us is permanent. It does not need to be done again. Jesus on the cross says what? It is finished. He did it. He did it. He won our salvation. Look at um, Hebrews 7, 23. Hebrews seven twenty three. 
The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who, here's that word again, draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This high priest made one sacrifice for all time and he is our high priest forever and ever. Earthly high priests could only be a shadow, a flicker of what was to come when Jesus came and fulfilled all of that. Now here, here is the question here about Jesus being our high priest then. Because this gets down to the nitty gritty of everyday life. So how can you approach God? How can you approach God? Can you approach God? Do you approach God? Will you approach God? This is a huge question. Can you get close to this God? Or is he like Zeus up on Mount Olympus with a bunch of lightning bolts ready to knock you down when you mess up? Or is this God one who has opened up the way to himself? He has, of his own initiative, opened the way to enter and to have relationship, to have access. Do you have access to this God? Can you approach this God? Through Christ, our high priest. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't have him as a high priest and you are shut out of the presence of God. You don't have to be. That's why he came to offer himself so that he might present himself as a high priest who could pay for your sins. So this is the interesting picture here. The high priest would slaughter a goat and take the blood of a goat and make the atonement. Jesus, the high priest, offers himself. The high priest is the sacrifice. The high priest becomes the sacrifice. And in this picture, the sacrifice dies, rises, and takes his place again as our high priest. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that good to know that you have access to God? We don't have to slaughter any animals this morning. Praise the Lord. We don't have to do any of that. We don't have to do any of that. We can cleanse our hearts through the blood of Jesus and come into God's presence with confidence. Well, the next name is Advocate. The next name is Advocate, and this is in 1 John 2, 1. And this is only used once of Jesus in the whole Bible. Here is the only place. So 1 John 2, 1, you'll want to go here. Uh, many of you know the famous verse, 1 John 1, 9, which uh, precedes us by two verses. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This being in the discussion of sin and separation, sin and light and dark, sin and knowing God. John says in the last verse of chapter 1, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And the good news comes in chapter 2, verse 1, because John says to his flock, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Why does John write this letter? So they won't sin. Okay, well, that could be, oh, I sin all the time. That's not helpful. Here's what it is. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole 
world. This word for advocate is the, the word that we hear as paraclete, uh, or the helper in uh, John's gospel, described as the Holy Spirit. Uh, I will send another helper, or a counselor, a comforter, depending on the version that you learned this in. So back in John um, 14 and 15, there is a few references to this helper who's going to come, that Jesus is going to send. But you'll notice, when Jesus says he's going to send one, he says, I'm going to send you another helper. Um, indicating that he himself is also the helper. Um, and in the picture of the Holy Spirit, it's one who's going to come, one who's going to come alongside Jesus' followers and, and help them, to counsel them. In 1 John chapter 2, the picture is more of a courtroom. Um, and this makes perfect sense because our enemy Satan, the very word Satan means adversary. Um, is someone who is opposed to us. Uh, you remember when Satan goes before God in the book of Job and accuses God of favoritism with Job and says, he doesn't really trust you. Watch this. You, let, you give me some leeway here and I'll turn him away from you. Um, this, this is kind of that, that same picture. In the book of Zechariah, um, Satan comes into the presence of God in a vision um, and is attacking the high priest. Um, and, and God says, no, hold on a second, wait. Okay. This is not going to happen. And it's this courtroom type picture. So the picture is you. The picture is me in the dock before a righteous and holy God. And the uh, prosecuting attorney, Satan himself, comes and says, Exhibit A, sinner. <laughs> okay? He's accusing. That's what he does. He is a, he's an accuser. He's our adversary. And what this picture says, but if anyone does sin, here's what John says. If you sin, meaning since you sin, you will sin. When you sin, there is an advocate with the Father. This picture is not necessarily of a, a lawyer, as it's more of a friend um, of the defendant who comes in to speak on behalf of the defendant. And if you want anybody to come and speak on your behalf, it's someone who's never sinned, has all power, and has existed forever. That's a pretty good advocate to have. So when Satan comes in and says, hey, God, look what this guy did, Jesus comes in and says, me. <laughs> right? Here I am. I'm the advocate before the Father. So the, the picture is not only of the courtroom, but the picture is that the advocate um, doesn't come from somewhere else. The advocate's with the judge. <laughs> The advocate is with the Father. The, the, the phrasing here is that um, he is Jesus Christ the righteous. He is an advocate with the Father. Which, by the way, is exactly the terminology that John uses in John 1.1 1, 1 when he says the word was with God. Um, that, that, God uh, that Jesus has been in God's presence. He is in God's presence as our advocate. Listen, you're going to sin. You may have just, just now. Like, you're, we're going to stumble and fall. We're going to sin. When you do, what do you do? John 1 and 2 give us exactly what we're supposed to do. Confess the sin. Confess the sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because we have an advocate. We have a counselor, a comforter, a friend who comes in and speaks on our behalf. In John's teaching, when a Christian has sinned, the father observes that the sinner is sponsored by Christ and is persuaded not to reject him and withdraw his truth. So this sinner can stand before God and say, yep, I did it. 
guilty, but can I have my advocate speak now? And Jesus, the advocate, the righteous one, speaks to God on our behalf. It's a beautiful picture. If you don't know this Jesus, then you don't have an advocate before the Father. And when you stand before the Father, you will be judged because you are a sinner and you will be guilty and there will be no rescue. But if you are willing to come and submit yourself to Jesus Christ, he will be your advocate before the Father. He will, in fact, other places in Scripture says, he's at the Father's right hand interceding for us. So what happens when you sin? You have an advocate who the whole time has been praying for you at the right hand of the Father. You know the Bible says that the Holy Spirit prays for us? In fact, sometimes he just interprets our groanings because we don't know what to say. You know that Jesus prays for us? My goodness, that's pretty good. <laughs> Who's praying for me? Well, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are praying for me. Wow, I, I, I feel a lot better now. That's a good team to have behind you. When Jesus and the Holy Spirit, our advocate and our helper, are on our side, who can be against us? No one's going to break into God's throne room with evidence to convict you because the advocate is there to speak on your behalf. Who will speak for you before God? Who will speak for you before God? Who are you, who are you banking on? You're going to craft your own defense before God? You're going to come up with some way to excuse yourself? No, seed the floor, let the advocate speak. The last term, the last name that we want to cover today is servant. Servant. And this is very short. Um, servant in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. Isaiah in the second half is famous for the servant songs. There are four or five of them, depending on how you're counting. And what is presented to the people of Israel is that there is a servant, the servant of the Lord, the servant of God, who is going to come in and do what Israel, the servant of God, could not do. Israel as a servant failed. What Isaiah promises is that there is a coming servant who will not fail and who will serve God in a perfect way, in a way that will also, in the end, serve us. So Isaiah fifty-two thirteen: Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. And then we transition into chapter 53, which says that this servant has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the servant, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The servant is Jesus, who identifies himself as such throughout the Gospels. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. How? And to give his life as a ransom for many. How does this servant serve us? He gives his life for our ransom. In the book of Acts, three times, Peter says, Your servant Jesus. Your servant Jesus your servant Jesus. The, the New Testament church understood that Jesus was the prototypical servant. And that is why throughout the New Testament, we are called to imitate Christ and be servants as he served. So as Jesus served, we are to serve as well. We are to trust in his service on our behalf, on the cross. And now, because he has served us, we live to serve others. So whose example Will you imitate? 
Whose example will you imitate? As the elders come forward um, and we uh, celebrate communion, these are beautiful names to connect with celebrating the Lord's Supper. So we have a teacher who taught us what this is for. Um, We have a high priest who's gone before us into the presence of God. He has become the propitiation, the one who's put himself on the cross for our sins. He is our advocate before the Father and he served us by his body being broken for us and his blood being spilled. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son on the cross for us. And as we we end this gathering with singing, Lord, I pray that you would direct our hearts to um, the body and the blood that was shed for us. Jesus Christ, our rabbi, our high priest, our advocate. He's our servant who has served us well. And Lord, we want to rejoice in your son and to praise him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.